finally, we want you to cross the green border in Ethiopia to Kenya, Omo region. Very remote. There's no police, no roads, no infrastructure, no nothing. This is where the real tribes people live. We have this romantic picture. Now we are going to meet people who still live very close to nature. The roads ended and there was only sand, the thorn bushes. We crossed a deep river. And suddenly there was a warrior. He had feathers in his hair, wore an apron, scars on his chest for the enemies he had already killed. And he pointed an AK-47 towards us. Within three minutes, we were surrounded by about 20 armed men. They separated us. There was a fight about who gets Ramona as a wife, who gets uh, the panniers. The situation escalated. They are trying to shoot at each other. Suddenly, somebody appeared on the scene. He was different from the others. This is Nick Sanders. I'm Jason Spafford. And I'm Lisa Morris. My name is Austin Vince. This is Rob Beach. I'm Rachel. This is Ed March. This is Glenn Hickstead. This is Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. This is Dave Barr. This is Alan Carl. This is Tiffany Coates. Hello, here is Herbert Schwartz. I am Brett Tax. This is Zoe Cano. This is Nathan Millward. My name is Graham Hoskins. This is Joe Russ. Hi, this is Jeremy Craker. I'm Simon Thomas. And I'm Lisa Thomas. It's Simon Pavey here. Hi, this is Grant Johnson. This is Robert Wicks. This is Elisa Workler. <laughs> this is Ted Simon. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. The intro you heard was part of the story of Ramona Schwartz, and Ramona is a world traveler, a prolific adventure motorcycle journalist and photographer. As well, in this episode, we're going to have the Rickses, Shirley and Brian, give an update in the middle of their trip heading into uh, Russia, and you're going to also pick up some travel tips from them, which are definitely worthwhile sticking around for. We also have Rob Harris from the Fundy Adventure Rally. Stay with us. we got a lot more coming up. I'm Jim Martin, and this is Adventure Rider Radio. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. You can also sign up for free for their weekly e-rider newsletter at maxbmw.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. 
and Best Rest products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, when you're on the road, or off the road for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and can fill a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA and with a five-year warranty. Check it out at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. And Modal Machines. Modal Machines offers luggage systems, protection, windshields, custom ABS plastic parts, and more for over 700 different models dating back to the 1970s. Modal Machines carries the widest selection of luggage available on the market, and all accessories are bolt-on ready for a custom fit. Visit them at motomachines.com. That's motomachines.com. adventurer and travel writer photographer Ramona Schwartz who is um well where are you now Ramona I'm in the black forest in southern Germany in a place called Obereschach and this one is so difficult to pronounce that all my English speaking friends call it O town well you know I'm sort of curious about the black forest what exactly is the black forest well apparently it's a forest and you mainly find fir trees here and because of this very black appearance you know of the color they call it the black forest and what what goes on there well it's a very romantic uh, place most people have heard about the cuckoo's Uhr, you know and old uh, black forest houses we actually just moved to an old place it's 800 years old so older than your country it's from 1268, and we just moved in here two months ago, and we love the new place. Well, you've traveled the world on your motorcycle for six years, um, yeah. and you're maybe you could say you're on a hiatus at this point, but we'll get to that. Let's back right up. You were born in East Germany, and you, you grew up on, under that strict uh, rule and regime. Can you tell us what those early years were like for you? Well, you know... It made me to the person I am, which is uh, quite important. Um, I was born in 1976 and um, I grew up under the communist dictatorship. That meant uh, brainwashing, secret police, oppression, propaganda and teachers trying to break me. And uh, luckily I had good friends in the neighboring village. It's um, the Vegans, a family. Um, he was a poet and she made the best cookies in the world and they inspired me to challenge my world and think for myself so I owe them a lot so was it were they actual rebels or were they just being mistaken I mean he's a poet so is he just sort of getting uh, flagged as a rebel even though he's not or was he actually a rebel he was a rebel but a right. secret one <laughs> <laughs> And, and and so and by the time you, I think you turned thirteen, um, nineteen eighty nine, when the when the Berlin Wall came down, um, that must have just been an unbelievable thing. What was that like to be living at one way and then all of a sudden find out the whole world just changes overnight? Yeah, as you said, it was unbelievable. First of all, because we had been told in school there's one thing that's never going to change and this is East Germany. East Germany and the war will always be there. And for me it was really strange because as a kid I, when I climbed the highest mountain that was the so-called Fellberg 
that was 842 meters high, I could actually see a castle in the west. It was about 15 kilometers as the crow flies. And I saw this beautiful castle. And at the same time, I knew I could never, ever cross the border and ever get there. And suddenly the wall had come down and I could go there. I could explore the world. And that was fantastic. So at that point, do you just run? You just go for it? I mean, I imagine a lot of people did. Yeah, of course. And we all cried when we crossed the border. You know, there were like eight people cramped in this little East German car, the Trabant. So we crossed the border and we all started to cry. It was very emotional. And uh, yeah, it was actually beautiful times. And, and would you ever go back at that point in your mindset at that point? Or were you leaving for good? Um, I wasn't leaving for good because, first of all, I had to get myself a proper education because I needed to get a good job, you know, and make something of myself. <laughs> At least I was expected to, you know, get a proper education. <laughs> so the wall falls down, you, you sort of escape from this oppressive life and, and, and you go and you get um, your education and get a normal job. But um, that I guess that appeared to be what you wanted because you couldn't have that, I would imagine. And I'm, I'm obviously, I'm just imagining this, but, but I could picture that, that that's what you'd be after is that life that everybody else has. But you weren't in it very long before you found that that wasn't the life you wanted. That's true, because um, I tried what you would call a conventional life for about three years. And I soon discovered that it wasn't for me because like working, sleeping, consuming, there's got to be more, I thought. And I was curious to find out what lies behind the horizon. And at that time, my then boyfriend, Uwe, popped the question, hey, Ramona, do you want to ride the world on a KTM with me? That seems, that seems bizarre, though. He just, he just, like, it just comes up with this for you? I mean, was there any prelude to this? No. <laughs> he just throws it out there. Do you want to, I mean, because it just seems, even for a person that hasn't done it, such as myself, it just seems like such a huge undertaking. But for you, especially at that point, it must have just seemed incredible. Yeah, of course it was. But I didn't hesitate for a second. I knew this was for me. And, uh, you know, I'm a very curious person and I'm brave, I'd say. And uh, so I, I just do things and I try things and sometimes I make mistakes, but so what? <laughs> <laughs> Better to have tried and, and to have failed than to have never tried at all. Mm -hmm. You so, know, I never wanted to have any regrets. I never wanted to look back on a life and, you know, aged 60 and then regret the many things I hadn't done. So I thought... Or I said to myself, let's get out now and do it now and set a date. Does that come from your past, from growing up in East Germany? Is, do you think that's what makes you that type of person? That you, you sort of, you, feel, you know what it's like not to have, and now you feel like it's out there, so you've got to try it all. You know, you have to be the type of person for this, I think. Because there's others, and they, you know, the change, the coming down of the wall brought a lot of fear for them because they were used to following a leader and suddenly there was no more leader. So they had to think for themselves. They had to make their own decisions, which was uh, pretty difficult for them. So you tell your boyfriend you want to go and, and what do you do there? You quit your job and, and how do you get your finances together, etc., to do this trip? 
Well, first of all, there was a little challenge because I didn't know how to ride a motorcycle. <laughs> ah. <laughs> and it was meant to be a round-the-world trip on a motorcycle. <laughs> you are adventurous. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, Ramona, forget about, uh, you know, riding bitch on my bike. You have to ride your own bike. And I said, okay, I'll do. So I got my rider's license, my driving license, but um, I didn't get a lot of experience because the very first or the very day after I um, had passed the test, it started to snow. And um, so I parked the bike in the garage and um, three months later, I crossed the Sahara on it. <laughs> okay, so we're, we're missing the license part. Where did you get your license? I got it in East Germany, but I was not allowed to ride a bike as the 640 LC4, you know, the KTM I was riding back then. Mm -hmm. I just jumped on the bike and uh, off I rode, hoping that nobody would check my papers. And nobody did. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So what was crossing the Sahara like for a brand new rider on a KTM 640? I mean, imagine um, when I faced the vastness of the desert, and it must have been 125 degrees Fahrenheit. It was only then that I grasped the full meaning of my enterprise, but I knew that I could do it somehow. Of course, the first year was very hard, and Africa itself, this beautiful continent, it was a culture shock. And um, I stopped counting my falls, but again and again, I jumped back on my KTM and rode on, and I made it. So finally, you, you, you learned through trial by fire. You went out there and you had to learn to ride to survive. Right. And I also listened to this little voice in my head because when I had told my friends, you know, that I was going to ride around the world, they all said, hey, Ramona, you're crazy. You will never be able to do it and you will fail and you'll be back after three weeks maximum. You know, and whenever it got very difficult, I heard them say this to me and I said, no. I'll you otherwise. <laughs> you went to Africa first, and this always surprised me because to to me from North America, Africa, you know, is a uh, it's the real deal as far as, and I think most people will say that. Almost everybody says that it's the real deal for a place to travel. It's there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of um, challenge, like the Sahara that you start off with at the very first of it. Um, did it ever occur to you to, to or to both of you, to try North America or, or Europe or something that was easier? What was the what was the drive to go to Africa? It was the closest. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> no, I wanted to have the real deal, you know. I didn't want to um, waste time with uh, doing mediocre, you say, stuff, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. You just dive in and, and go for the uh, the maximum to begin with. You said it was a culture shock. Um, how did you, how long did it take you to get into a routine as you're riding through Africa? I'd say at least three to four months. Because the first um, real mistake I made was, like, I always had a plan. You know, I wanted, I, I did, like, a list where I had to be um, when... And uh, of course, I wanted to stick to that plan. So I, I knew exactly, you know, these are the sites I want to visit. And, I, you know, it's like a list you tick off. And of course, that's uh, nonsense. Nowadays, I just travel and I have no plans. And I ask the locals and I meet the people. And they will tell you, you know, where to go, what to experience. 
And um, I actually don't even take any guidebooks anymore. I just go. I have a rough plan of where I want to go and when, but that's it. That's interesting because so many people do the opposite. They have all the, exactly what you said you did in the first uh, bout, is go through with a checklist of things to see. But lately I've been speaking with a couple of people who have the same attitude as you to to go and, and sort of blindly find their way. We have someone that I just interviewed that doesn't even get a map for the country that he goes into. He gets it afterwards so he can mark where he's been. And it's it's kind of ironic that that is, a, that is really almost true adventure, isn't it? Yeah. But you know, it's all about expectations because if you meet other, you know, fellow travelers and you tell them, hey, I'm going to Ethiopia and then and they've already been. So they will tell you all about their experiences. You have to go there and it looks like this. And then once you get there, you might have a completely different picture in your mind and then you might be disappointed. So not having any ideas, you know, is pretty good. I mean, you'll always be surprised. You know, I've traveled a lot, so I have a little bit of experience and I know a little bit what the world looks like. And I also trust my gut feeling. And you first have to learn to do that. And what do you trust your gut feeling for, for dealing with people? Yes, and also for choosing campsites. I've slept um, in a tent for six years. And, um, you know, I warmed myself by the fire, I bathed in ice-cold rivers and stuff like that. So <laughs> you have to find the right spot for the night, especially when you travel all by yourself as a lady. So what, what are the, the things that you use as you're looking for a campsite? I mean, this is, this is a common thing for people to ask about, too, that for, for um, emails that we get to this show, is people want to know how you find these campsites. And they, I think for a lot of people, it's difficult to even figure out uh, what you look for uh, as far as a place yeah. to camp. I mean, it all depends on what you love. I love the end-of-the-world places and usually a very difficult bumpy road leads to them, you know, mostly it's gravel, so dirt tracks. And then you just ride up that hill and you can already picture your tent on top of that hill and you're sitting next to your tent, you know, looking, enjoying the sunset. Um, usually I start looking for a campsite one hour before it gets dark. And you know, that's ideal. Of course, you can't always do it. And then you just look around and I never camp next to the road so everybody could see me from the road. I kind of hide a little bit in the bushes. <laughs> and then water is good. And uh, maybe a tree, you know, when there's bear country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stuff like that. And when it's a very crowded place, like in Africa, I usually knock on the next door, on the, ne on the next hut and uh, ask the people, hey, I'm Ramona from Germany, can I camp in your garden? And they're always welcome. And um, they welcome you and they say, yes, of course. And they invite you into their little hut. And um, interestingly, the poorest people are the most hospitable ones. Yeah, I hear this again and again, and it's, it really makes you wonder, doesn't it, about uh, uh, the Western world and, and the thought process, because that's what everyone says, the poorest people give the most. It's very yeah. odd. They have a big heart and maybe they have nothing to lose. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So, so you fall into a rhythm after four or five months. You, you, were going, you were planning to go around the world. How long was your trip originally planned for? Well, first of all, we just wanted to cross Africa from north to south and then see how we like it. And if you like it a lot, we don't go back to Germany, don't go back to the old grind, but jump over to Australia. And that's what we did. Now, you're both riding KTM 640s? Mm-hmm, yeah. 
And how are you getting by for money? Is this just so far on all the money you've saved to go? Yeah, we saved a little bit of money. We quit our jobs. We sold everything we owned and that made us feel free. <laughs> okay, so after a while, I mean, you, you ended up spending six years in the road. After a while, that money runs out. And what do you do for, for money at that point? Yeah, what I did, I started um, to sell photos, to write articles. Uh, sometimes, like in Australia, we were really short on money when we were in Australia. We were asking ourselves, okay, how can we earn some money? So we would just um, ask in a pub, hey, can we do a little show, you know, a presentation of our travels? So we didn't sell any tickets, but at the end of the show, we would pass around a hat, and if people liked it, they could, uh, you know, drop some coins. Oh, wow, that's, that's a good way to do it. You also ended up um, writing for uh, many, many magazines, um, including Roadrunner magazine out of the States. Um, uh, and I'm going to mess it up if I try and pronounce it. Tour and Far, is, did I even get close yeah. on that? Yeah. That's it. <laughs> and, and, and others. You just approached them and said, hey, this is Ramona from Germany. I'm traveling around the world. Do you want to buy a story from me? Exactly. And they always did. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are a brave person. There's no doubt at all. You, you Now, you did run into one problem in Ethiopia. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. It was actually the only problem I had in six years, and it was a serious one. So, Uwe and I, we wanted to cross the green border. We found this word in a guidebook that's called Across Africa. It said, cross the green border in Ethiopia to Kenya. And this was in the so-called Omo region. And Omo region means it's a very remote area. There's no police, no roads, no infrastructure, no nothing. This is where, you know, the real tribes people live. And we have this romantic picture uh, of the Omo region. Hey, now we are going to meet people who still live very close to nature. You know, like this uh, picture book thing you have about Africa. So... Riding there was very hard because literally um, the roads ended and there was only sand and uh, thorn bushes. And suddenly we crossed a deep river, a dry riverbed. And suddenly there was a warrior and he pointed an AK-47 towards us. And he had feathers in his hair. He wore an apron. He had scars on his chest for the enemies he had already killed. You know, he looked like from a postcard, like you imagine Africa. Yeah. And of course, we stopped and uh, we wanted to talk ourselves out of this situation, as we had done many times before. But um, he only spoke a tribal language and he didn't speak any English, no French, no nothing, no language that we could speak. And within three minutes, we were surrounded by about 20 armed men. And there were women and children. And somehow the situation was very tense. And they... The warriors, they separated us, so we could not speak to each other. And suddenly there was a fight about how, you know, who gets what, like who gets Ramona as a wife, who gets uh, the panniers, uh, you know, the, the gas cans and all that. So they would cut off everything they could. They did not know how to open an aluminum pannier because this mechanism was too difficult for them. And it was a very remote place, as I've said before, and I doubt that they even these people even knew that they were living in a place, in a country that's called Ethiopia. They had no money, you know, they just did, did bartering. And um, 
then somehow the, the situation escalated and everybody who was unarmed would, uh, you know, go down to the ground. And then, okay, we were thinking, oh my God, you know, they are uh, trying to shoot at each other. And I prayed and suddenly somebody appeared on the scene and he was different from the others because he wore a t-shirt and shorts and he spoke English. And it turned out that he was one of the three policemen at this very small border post. And I implored him to help us. And he said, hey, what do you think? There's only three of us and about, you know, 40 warriors. I'm afraid myself. The only thing I can think of is take you to the prison. So I will arrest you. Follow me to the end of the village. And um, that's what we did. But before we could get there, everybody, all the warriors wanted to hop on our bikes and, you know, get a ride. <laughs> and I mm -hmm. guess they had never seen motorbikes, you know, nor helmets, nor all the fancy stuff <laughs> before. So, of course, we toppled over and eventually we made it to the end of the village. And then it was in the desert and suddenly it started to rain, which was a sign, I think. <laughs> and the, the eldest people from the tribe, they gathered and uh, we got most of the things back that they had stolen before. And the police said, you know what? At four o'clock in the morning, you just sneak out of here. Um, we wish you good luck. Kenya is over there. And he just pointed, you know, into the desert. And it took us uh, two days to get to Kenya. Wow, that is incredible and so lucky that this uh, this guy shows up. I mean, you had to have thought, this is it. This is where you're going to end up. Uh, this is going to be the end of you. Yeah, but you know what? I was really surprised about how clear your mind works in such a, in such a situation because you think, okay, you panic, you know, you, you go crazy, you cry. No, not at all. You think very clearly and you know exactly what to do. You kind of function, you know, and like the emotional breakdown and all of that is, it comes later when you're safe. <laughs> so you managed to get most of your gear back, if not all of it back and, and managed to ride away and, um, and, and cross the desert and get into Kenya? Yeah. A very, very close call. But and as you said, that was your only thing. I mean, you traveled the world for six years and that was your only problem that you ran into. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and was that because you're in the wrong place, uh, you know, or is it just one of those things? Yeah, I guess it's just one of those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just sort of stumble across it. But I mean, uh, I think quite often, especially in Western society, we really focus on things that go wrong. People love to do it, especially the naysayers. I'm sure your friends that um, told you not to go would have been standing there at that time saying, see, Ramona, I told you not to go. And that's why. And now you've learned. I think people tend to focus on that, but you have to put it in perspective. We're talking one thing there, and you've ridden all over this world, which is supposed to be this scary, dangerous, mistrusting place. Yeah. You know, in most situations, when, say, I had a breakdown in the middle of nowhere, and there was nobody, nothing, you know, I was in the middle of the desert, I didn't have enough water, no gas. I was like, okay, maybe I'm going to die now. But suddenly, you know, like a miracle somebody appeared on the horizon it was a camel rider you know and he came to help me you know stuff like that happened like non-stop so i'm convinced that 90 percent of the people out there are good you know we often talk about adventure here and we talk about the definition of adventure and we get a lot of people to to say what they think their definition of adventure is what is your definition of adventure ramona and is adversity and time required for it yeah. 
You know, Irish Murph, maybe you've heard about him, also an adventure traveler. He said, find your comfort zone and then leave it. And I think this is the perfect way, you know, to say what adventure is all about. And is that is that adventure or is that how we should be living our life? Yeah, how we should be living our lives. Yeah, it's both, isn't it, really? I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, because, um, you know, if, if you just go through life with everything being the same all the time, I mean, come the end of it, what have you really experienced? You need highs and lows, in my mind, to mm-hmm. really know uh, the appreciation of, of, of each other. You know, to, to be able to properly appreciate the highs, you need to have sunk to the lows, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, and also you have to question the world and you have to go and see for yourself because... The picture portrayed by media is not always right. I mean, in most cases, it's completely wrong. I'm always surprised, even if I've already traveled a country and when I go back after so many years, you know, the picture that we get on TV is so wrong or it's just one side to the story, to a very complex story. So you should really go there and find out for yourself. Talk to the people, you know, and um, let them tell you their stories. And I found out, I often do that, you know, I knock on somebody's door and, you know, I, I make friends with them, I take their photos and I tell them about my adventurous life and I ask them about their lives. And I'm surprised sometimes because they often tell me secrets and maybe they do that, you know, they tell me their life stories, but maybe they do that because they know that I take their story with me and the next day I'll write off. Right, and they feel safe doing that. Mm-hmm. But also, I think, you know, for us, for, for writers, photographers, for journalists, we have a responsibility to the people, to the poor people, you know, people in poor countries that we interview and that we ask for their stories. So because they do not have the means, maybe not the education, you know, to speak for themselves. So I always take their photos and I promise them, you know, in my next articles, I will write about you. And that's what I do. That's a very good point, because isn't it not only journalists like yourself, but it's also a responsibility that you need to take on just as a writer going into any place, um, that you don't exploit things, you don't take advantage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very true. Mm-hmm. After, after traveling the world for six years and, and only having that problem, and hearing the description of the world through the media like we all do, how would you describe Africa at that point? You know, since my first year in Africa had been a tough one, a hard one, I wasn't so very fond of that place. It was actually my husband, Herbert, who is a fan of Africa. He's been there over 30 times. And, um, you know, he he always said, hey, Ramona, Africa is such a wonderful place. We have to go back there. Come with me. And um, so we've done... Ethiopia, Madagascar, Lake Victoria together, you know, many places in Africa we have revisited. And because I have changed as a person, you know, I'm more patient maybe and more in peace with myself. Um, you only, you also approach people in a different way when you're not just focused on yourself, which means you will have a completely uh, different experience with them. It's true when I say, you know, the way how you approach the world the world will respond or will approach you. <laughs> and while you're traveling, you were traveling with your boyfriend at the time, the entire time you guys didn't split up? Well, after five years on the road together, we came to a junction and Uwe rode left and I rode right. 
We are still good friends, but we just, uh, you know, aren't a couple anymore. That sounds like something out of a movie. Uh, you know, I can, I can just picture that and it's perfect. But, but there had to be some, some prelude to that, I guess, you know, some uh, uh, things were not, were not going great. What was it like, though, when you rode right, when you went off on your own? Did, were you prepared for it at this point or was it something, you know, completely shocking for you? No, no, it wasn't shocking. It was a new adventure. <laughs> so off you went and, and you were just fine with that and you kept writing and you kept uh, shooting photographs. I know that uh, you met Herbert uh, afterwards. Um, tell us about that. I was staying with a good friend of mine, a photographer. Paul is his name. He lives in Vancouver. And um, I got a phone call from Germany and it was Herbert Schwarz, my husband now. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he asked me, hi, Ramona, we had been in touch via email before and I had used his Sega pennies on my KTM. That's all I knew of him. And he said, you know, Ramona, I've heard about you. I read your articles and I'm looking for a woman who likes to suffer. <laughs> because <laughs> actually he was looking for a woman who would write a prototype, it was the BMW G640 Cross Challenge off-road from Canada to Mexico. And it was in November, so there was uh, snow in the mountains in Washington. And, uh, you know, we had to cross uh, mud pits and ice, you know. And he asked me um, two questions. One was, do you know how to make a fire? I said, yes, I do. And then he asked me, do you snore? And I said, no. Then he answered, okay, then we can sleep in one tent. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought at was... first you were saying he was actually looking for a wife and that's what he was emailing you for. Can you take a lot? And, and of course, I knew you were going to say that you went because obviously that is Ramona. You put up a challenge like that and she's going to say, yes, I'm there. Off you go. And obviously you guys hit it off because you got married. You now have two children and you haven't stopped being an adventure. So how would you describe yourself when someone says, well, Ramona, you know, what do you do? Um, I'm still a very adventurous person. I'm a mother now, a mother of two kids. We have two sons. Yannick is eight years old and Yaron is seven years old. And they both love adventure as much as we do. So we were able, you know, when we had the kids, we said, um, it doesn't mean that we stop riding bikes or traveling on motorbikes. Let's see how we can combine traveling, riding bikes and having a family. And we managed by having a beautiful sidecar built. It's a BMW um, 1200GS sidecar. And we have taken our boys to over 30 countries in the world. And once a year we go and travel together as a family. I'm on a solo bike and the kids are in the sidecar. And we go and camp and travel the whole world. And they love it. And it's the best education you can give to your kids, I think. I interviewed Herbert before, and I, and I know that you guys go on, on continuous adventures. And, he, and he, that's his um, uh, idea of life, is that he has to be able to have time for his adventures and can't be too caught up with work. Is that the same for you? You're uh, making that a part of your life, that you're setting up new adventures all the time, and you probably have one in the works right now? Yeah, right. Luckily, Herbert has me to remind him of that all the time. You know, <laughs> we have to go out there and travel, Herbert. <laughs> Leave your desk. <laughs> right. So what's yeah. the next big adventure? In about two weeks, we go to Greece. Because at the moment, um, you might have heard it in the, in the news, the political situation is very tough. 
And of course, uh, that attracts somebody like me, and I want to see and find out for myself what the heck is going on there. And I'm sure I've experienced, I have Greek friends, and the Greek are beautiful, friendly people, and I'm sure they still are, even they have to live through very difficult times right now. And you'll go there and shoot photographs and, and write stories for magazines? Oh yeah, I'm sure I will. Yeah. But um, yeah, we mainly go there to have a family vacation and uh, to meet some friends. Oh, so you'll, you'll take the kids with you? Oh yeah, of course. Oh great. Because <laughs> you, you do that, don't you? You take the kids on some and then you guys go off on your own as well. Right. Okay, so once a year we do what we call a big project and that lasts between three and four weeks and we take a film team and photographers and we go to some exotic place in the world and uh, when we are lucky we get prototypes and um, then we take photos, make a DVD and um, meet people yeah, and explore the country or the region we are traveling. And of course we also, we also test gear for Touratech. And where are the films shown? They are uh, DVDs that we sell via Touratech. We've already done, I can call or tell you about some of them. We've been to Africa many times because, as I said before, Herbert loves Africa. He's a big fan of Africa. So we've been to Madagascar. We've been around Lake Victoria. We've been to Ethiopia. We called that movie One More Cup of Coffee Before the Desert. We've been to Asia. That was no plan is a good plan. It's Thailand, Laos, Cambodia. And we've been to Scotland as a couple on an RT, which was quite strange. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet. But good for a change. <laughs> yeah, then we've done Cantumax. What else? Zimzambot. That was Zimbabwe, Zambia, Botswana. That was uh, the last adventure. And we have, we took two American guys. One is a very good photographer, John Beck. And he lives in California. And we also took um, an, a Hollywood actor, Kurt Yeager. And he's a below-the-knee amputee. And um, he inspires many people. And uh, I was really surprised by how good a rider he is. He's a better rider than I am, and I have two legs. Ramona, it's an amazing story. It's a life that I think many people would love to swap you for. I think you've really got the world by the tail. And uh, we'll keep watching what you're doing and possibly get you back on here again, maybe to talk about uh, the last adventure you've done. Of course, yeah. But tell me, why don't most people dare to do it? That's a very good question. I mean, I think people would come up with many answers for that. And I, I think some of them would be they can't because, and then they would give you the list of things um, and the reasons that they can't. But I, I suspect it's more fear. I think a lot of people really value what they consider to be security, which is staying in their comfort zone. And that would be my guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe you're right. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes I'm surprised because people look at me and, you know, they treat me a little bit like a hero. Hey, wow, what you've done, you know, extraordinary. And I don't think it's so extraordinary. I mean, it's just something somebody, everybody of us can do, you know. And usually, you know, when a man comes up to me and he's like twice as big as I am, <laughs> you know. And then I say, look at me. I'm just, you know, a small little girl. And uh, if I can do it, you can do it. And then you can see how he starts to think about this. And then after a while he says, yes, you are right. You know, it's like, yeah. So for me, I'm very happy if I tell my story and I can inspire other people to go and travel the world.
I, I think it's telling that you see it as an easy thing when you're done. You, you're, you're saying, well, you know, anybody can go, you can go. I mean, not everyone can. I mean, we realize that some people, maybe they don't have, uh, they have no way of getting the finances or whatever the case is, or maybe physical or family things. I mean, there are going to be people like that. But I think for the most of us, it's just a matter of not wanting to step outside of that comfort zone. But it's very telling that you say that you don't see yourself as some hero um, after doing it. That's got to say something about the reality of the traveling because everyone seems to say that. They go, well, it's not that easy. It's not that difficult. You just go and you do it. Yeah. I think the most difficult part is to make the decision to do it. And then you definitely have to set a date because if you don't, then, you know, when I hear people say, yeah, one day I'm going to do it, then I know they are never going to do it. So you have to say, okay, 1st of April next year, I'll be ready and I'll ride off into the unknown. <laughs> yeah. And then so make that public declaration. So you're sort of held to it. You're, you're pressured to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a very good point. Well, Ramona, thank you very much. Yeah. And I hope you like my German accent and my grammar. <laughs> <laughs> I've been speaking with Ramona Schwartz, and you can find out more about Ramona by looking her up on Facebook or dropping by the Touratech website, or you can drop by our website and look at the show notes for this episode. Coming up next, we're going to talk with Shirley and Brian Ricks, who are partway through, I guess halfway through their adventure heading into Russia and beyond. We've got some good travel tips coming from them as well. And we're also going to talk with Rob Harris from the Fundy Adventure Rally. Stick around. We'll be back in a minute. I want to talk about the Good Adventure Company for a minute, which is one of our show partners. The Good Adventure Company claims to be the first adventure motorcycle outfitter with a mission of making the world a better place to live and ride. How do they do it? Well, they donate their profits to sustainable nonprofit organizations, specifically targeting those that help children and families. Uh, the one they're working with right now is called Lost for a Reason, which is a great charity. They are soft luggage experts, and they they only sell what they try and love themselves. That's pretty. Neat. These guys are riders. They go out there, they take gear out that they buy, they try it. And when they fall in love with it, then they decide to handle it. That's a, another great feature, I think, about it. They handle Wolfman luggage, Giant Loop, and Endurastan. They also sell hide-no-tires. Check out their website. It's good-adv.com. Now, another thing you're going to see on their website, which is pretty exciting, and if you're into getting out there riding, which I think most of us are, they have some guided motorcycle adventures. One is the Colorado backcountry in August. The other one, Mexico's Copper Canyon in February 2016. That would be very cool. They offer a 10% yearly dividend, free shipping on most items, and of course, they're donating their proceeds um, to great causes. I mean, you, you can't beat that. And we've got a special. For us, Adventure Rider Radio listeners, we have a 10% discount code. So if you want to go now and buy something, you're going to get 10% off and you're going to know that those proceeds are going to support, at this point, Lost for a Reason, but and later on, other sustainable nonprofit organizations. So drop by their website, www.good-adv.com. On the checkout, when you bought something, put in your code. The code is ARR, which, of course, is Adventure Rider Radio. Throw in the ARR, and you've got yourself 10% off your next order at goodadv.com, the Good Adventure Company.
I'm speaking with Brian Ricks and Shirley Hardy Ricks, who are, I'm not sure if it's midway, but they're certainly en route on another one of their adventures. So we're getting a bit of an update here. And, and it's live. It's pretty neat because just as we were talking before we started recording, they're telling me that they're going through maps and figuring out when they have to cross borders and everything. So this is, this is real and it's happening now. Shirley and Brian, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks, Jim. Hi, Jim, and thanks again. I, I really appreciate you guys taking the time in the middle of your trip here. And, uh, well, I don't know. Is it the middle? Where are we now? <laughs> yeah, I reckon it is the middle. We've been on the road for three months, and we think the next leg, well, weather um, will dictate that we need to be out of Siberia in three months. So we're pretty much halfway. So you're in Siberia right now? No, no, no. We're no. in the beautiful city of Moscow. Why don't you just give the listeners a recap of where you started and where you plan to end up? Okay, well, we, uh, on this journey, we shipped our motorcycle into Athens and um, collected it there. And our first day on the road was uh, a torrential downpour in, in Athens. But um, that's to be expected on a journey like this. Uh, we, did, um, we stayed with some friends in uh, Greece uh, we're then uh, through the mountains and into Romania. Um, Try Bulgaria. Bul- uh, yes, sorry. Bulgaria, <laughs> Romania, Hungary. Then we went into Austria, Germany, Denmark, the Netherlands, and then up into Scandinavia. Up and I've, I've got to say that that was the most amazing uh, journey through Norway. We paled up with an American... Um, David Hand, who we met on our last trip, and we travelled to the top of Alaska with David, and he was going to be in Europe at the same time as us, so we decided we'd travel to the top of Europe together, and uh, we did it through Norway. We rode through snow, snowstorms. Uh, we, we went across the Arctic Circle, and um, I put my finger across my visor to wipe off what I thought was water, and it was actually ice. <laughs> it was the most yeah. extreme conditions to yeah. ride a motorcycle. Yeah, it's pretty cold up there, but uh, you guys would be fairly used to cold weather. But I've got to say, Norway is just spectacular. Um, the, the road speed limit is 90, 90 kilometres an hour. But seriously, Jim, you really can't go much faster anyway if you want to take in the scenery uh, and it's corner after corner after corner, um, beautiful views, the the um, Atlantic Highway, which is, has got a bridge that sort of disappears into nothing, um, uh, up and over and through some islands. It's just beautiful. So I really enjoyed that part of the trip. We made our way up to Nordka and um, riding along um, the Bering Sea and uh, right up there in the Arctic Ocean uh, was spectacular. And then the wind came and came around some corners and to be quite honest with you, we nearly got blown off the road that many times. Our friend David, who's race motorbikes, he said it's the most extreme conditions he's ever ridden in. Um, the, the wind up there is so strong it will push camper vans over um, and when we got to the, the tip of uh, North Cape, or Nordcap, um, both David and I had to basically hold Shirley to the ground, she's a bit lighter than us, to walk out to the point because the wind was so strong. Is that right? Uh, wow. Yeah, we were a bit concerned. We had the bikes on the side stand and we tried to position the bikes so they were nose into the wind, but the wind changed a bit and uh, we thought that uh, they might have blown over, but uh, luckily they were standing up when we got back to them. And how did you find riding in that? 
Oh, I've got to oh, say, as a pinion passenger, tough. I was really quite frightened. I just hunkered down behind Brian. But um, I mean, we've done a lot of kilometres together overseas and around Australia, and but that was the windiest we've ever ridden in, and I was really quite concerned that we weren't going to stay on the road. And there wasn't a lot to move off into if you did get blown off the road. There was some, sometimes quite deep ravines over the edge of the cliff or into big boggy marshlands. It, it wouldn't have ended well had we been blown off the bike. The barriers on the side of the road are like a concrete block about twice the size of a gutter, uh, and that's the only thing that stops you from going into the sea. Um, so it, it can be quite scary, but uh, a, a big achievement, to be quite honest with you, Jim, to do that. We've now travelled from the bottom of the world in the Americas to the top of the world in the Americas to the top of the world in um, uh, Europe, and we've experienced the bottom part of South Africa. So it's a fair achievement on this uh, big red GS. And then we came down from North Cap into Finland, um, crossed back over into Sweden, just to experience that beautiful archipelago in the, the south of Sweden. So we did all that um, and then uh, caught a ferry across from Sweden into Finland to Helsinki, which is a lovely city. And then uh, went to the border with Russia and uh, dealt with the uh, bureaucracy and paperwork that uh, is required to get into Russia. Let's talk about that bureaucracy and paperwork for a minute. What exactly are we talking about here? Well, we have um, we have multiple entry visas, which took a lot of effort to get back in Australia because we had to get a letter of introduction to to Russia and um, and. It, it, fill in I think it was six pages of information mm. to get our visas but once we got to the border the gate getting out of Finland was easy but then we got got to the Russian side and the the boom gate was down but Russians kept going around it so we were in a queue with some um, Finnish people and of course it started to rain while we were there which is great when you're standing in the middle of nowhere <laughs> Getting eaten by mosquitoes. Getting, yes, huge mosquitoes. <laughs> but when we got into the Russian side, what they were doing was just allowing 20 or 30 cars in at a time so as not to have too much congestion. Um, the first man we spoke to was the immigration officer. Uh, he looked at our passports. He laughed at the fact that Brian now has quite a long beard, which he doesn't have in his passport photo. Uh, stamped us in. We had to fill in a form. He was so patient because we only filled in half of it and then he, he gave us pens. He wouldn't let anyone else come to the window while he was dealing with us. Uh, we finally filled in our forms correctly and he told us to go to the next window where closed his window while we filled in the form so no one would um, bother us while we were in his area and then um, helped Brian fill in the form to temporarily import the motorcycle and he went through every piece that Brian had to fill in and told him exactly the wording that he needed to put about the fact that it was um, the bike was for our personal use and we weren't going to sell it and uh, shut his window for about 15 minutes while he keyed all that information into the computer and then gave us our passports back and just said, welcome. It was fantastic. Wow. And the, nice. the uh, quarantine girl asked for one of the top bags on the top of one of the panniers to be opened, saw it just had spare gloves and waterproof, stamped the paper, and we were in Russia. It, mm. it took two hours, but the people could not have been more pleasant or more helpful. It was fantastic. 
Yeah, that's really neat. Did you pull up to the the border with a little apprehensive with all this figuring out that you had oh, to do? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it was the first real border we've done on this trip because once you, uh, I mean, the Eastern Bloc countries, we had to get things stamped. But once you're in Europe, there is no such thing as a border anymore. Um, so we just you just ride through what used to be borders. You can see where the buildings are that they used to use. But so we hadn't done a real boarding. So we were a bit anxious about a real border. So we were a bit anxious, but it was a, such a pleasant experience. Yeah, it was. And what I do when we cross the border, Jim, is uh, we'd heard a lot about Russian drivers and how crazy they are. And you've really got to get a feel of the road when you cross a border into a new country. And I take it real easy until you get the feel of what everyone does. And uh, the trucks will move right over onto the verge of the road to let you pass. The speed limit uh, on the open road in these forested areas is about 90 kilometres an hour, or is 90 kilometres an hour. Um, and the road is pretty bumpy and, and not in good condition, but you'll have lunatics, usually in black uh, cars, and I'm not sure whether they're government cars or not, <laughs> probably doing twice that speed, and if you don't see them coming in your mirrors, they'll pass really close to you. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you zig one way dodging a pothole and you don't see a car behind you, it could end in tears. So they have a road toll of about 30,000 a year. So um, you've really got to watch yourself on the road. And watch the road. Some of yeah. the potholes would swallow a small oh, car. Yeah. They're just we enormous. Saw, we were in St. Petersburg and riding into big cities in any country is um, a bit of a drama. Um, but um, we, we left St. Petersburg uh, a couple of days ago and uh, in one of the streets, the, you know those plastic bollards they fill with water for barriers oh, yeah. and things like that? They had one of those actually inside a pothole in the road and it was a third of the way in the hole. That's wow. how big the potholes are, so it would swallow a motorbike. So you've really got to watch yourself on the road. So I've been using Shirley said, sure. Your, your job now is to keep an eye on the mirrors because I have to look um, forward all the time. So um, we're working as a bit of a team at the moment. So how often are you getting overtaken by these, these people who are driving extremely <laughs> fast? Is it, is it all the time? Uh, yeah, it's fairly regular. regular yeah. Even um, coming into Moscow, I, I don't know how many people live in this city. I think it's something like, I don't know, 12, 15 million and you remember Australia only has a population of 23 million, so it's a lot of people in one place. And even coming into this city, we would be sitting in the traffic and people, if there was a gap, they would just scream past. They don't, no one sort of dawdles anywhere. Everything's flat, flat out. out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And look, uh, we sort of congratulated ourselves with a bottle of wine over dinner last night to ride through Moscow in peak hour traffic uh, is a real achievement. I can imagine that would be. <laughs> so where do you yeah. go from here? Uh, well, we just were, we're just sitting down. We, we're surrounded by maps in the, on the bed in the motel room at the moment. Uh, we're going to head across um, towards uh, a city called Kazan, down to Samara, and then we're going to head down towards um, Saratov, down, basically down the Volga River, heading south down towards Volgograd, and cross the border at Astrakhan, which is right in the south of Russia, um, into Kazakhstan. Um, the reason we're doing that is there's some beautiful cities in the south of Uzbekistan, 
So we hope to get a, a scoot across um, the bottom of uh, Kazakhstan up to the Aral Sea and see if we can find those ships that are abandoned when the Aral Sea receded and um, then make our way to the beautiful cities of um, Kiva and uh, Bukhara and Samarkand in uh, Uzbek. So that's the rough plan for the next uh, few weeks, Jim. Well, really, uh, like, as you said, riding through Europe is, you know, sort of uh, easy to do, relatively speaking. And also you have all the modern amenities. Now you're really into a point where the trip turns, right? Or I guess you would have been at the, at the you would have thought so at the Russian border, but especially as you head into Kazakhstan. Well, I think some of the roads are going to be um, more challenging. Yeah. Yeah. We've put um, higher profile, harder compound tyres on the bike to deal with that. There'll be dirt and... Mm. unmade roads and roads that are just perishing. I mean, that's something we found riding from the Finnish border into St. Petersburg. The roads have been good at some stage, yeah, but they're just deteriorating now and there's lots of big cracks and then they just patch, patch them in lots of places or they rip up the top of the surface for three or four kilometres and score it ready to reseal. So that can be a bit tricky riding on that sort of surface as well. Uh, so plus the other thing you must understand is we don't read Russian. <laughs> and other than a sign that says Moscow underneath the Russian for Moscow, everything else has been in uh, the Cyrillic alphabet. So even getting the train into the centre of Moscow today was challenging, trying to work out what station we were on. So it's that is another big thing that we're having but to deal with. Having said that, Jim, the people, are, they're quite reserved people and they won't approach you, but if you approach them with a smile on your face, uh, everyone tries to help you. A young girl in the, the um, beautiful um, subway railway stations, she... Uh, looked at, uh, we, we told her where we wanted to go and she said, oh, yes, this is my job. I will show you. And next thing, she's on a train with us, on two trains, <laughs> and directing us right to Red Square. And wow. said, I hope you have a nice time and then turned and went away. We expected her to say, go down here and get yeah. on the train going yeah. this direction, but she actually took us down the escalator and on the train and off the other end and... Mm. took us up into the edge of Red Square. It was extraordinary. And we stopped at a petrol station just after we crossed the border and we'd been given by a friend 500 rubles, but we were looking for a, um, an automatic bank to see if we could get some more cash. And uh, a man came up and started talking to us who was a, a vet yes. at the local forest with foxes. I didn't quite understand what he did with them. But um, when we told him we were looking for a bank, he said there wasn't one where we were, but did we need money and got money out of his pocket and went to give us money so we could get something to eat. And we thought, no, it's okay, we've got we've got a little bit of money, we just needed a bank. But, I mean, that is just, he didn't know us from Adam. We were just two foreigners standing in a petrol station. Extraordinary friendship. That's incredible. Are you finding a lot of people who speak English? Uh, less and less, Jim, uh, I would say that. And I think once we leave... Uh, Moscow and uh, obviously in St. Petersburg, a few people spoke English. I think it's going to get less so. Um, so that is going to be a bit challenging for us. We've actually um, touched base with a, another, a French Canadian guy, Damien Fischer, who's coming up from Georgia. So uh, we may well hook up with him uh, before we cross over into Kazakhstan. He's traveling on a, a 1200 GS with a sidecar. So you never know. Uh, we may well be able to 
um, battle our way through the language barrier together. But with the um, language barrier, Jim, we've got this great book called Picture Talk, which friends of ours um, suggested we get, and it's a little pocket-sized book that has drawings inside of buses and food, different sorts of food, and little rooms with two beds in it or one bed and a bath and a shower. So you can actually point to these pictures and so people know you're looking for a hotel room or it's got tyres and it's got little maps and it's really quite extraordinary. So that's called Picture Talk and, and Picture who, Talk. who publishes that? Uh, well, we it's could. a German company, Langenscheidt. L-A-N-G-E-N-S-C-H-E-I-D-T, Picture Talk. It's a fabulous, fabulous book. But our friends um, who are in Eastern Russia now said they have found it invaluable. So that lives in the top of the tank bag or if we're out in the street, it lives in the backpack. And this is a thick book that has just about everything you, everything you can think of. I assume it's divided up in an organised fashion. Well, it's sort yeah, of organised, but uh, it's only about... 20 pages? Yeah. And they're sort of um, wax-coated hard cardboard, so it's not going to fall apart too quickly. And um, it's probably 10 spreads of, of photos. It's got all sorts of different terrain. It's got post offices. It's got, if you're looking for CDs or a US, it's got a USB stick. It's got um, a Wi-Fi symbol, a PowerPoint, telephones, everything we could find out where we could play tennis it's got a tennis court <laughs> or we could play soccer or ride a camel kind or of, an elephant it's all in there. <laughs> it kind of makes you wonder doesn't it i mean everything sounded really organized up until that point i mean how many people are, are going somewhere and looking to play tennis or ride a camel i, I don't know maybe it's me <laughs> Well, the picture of riding the camel, the horse, and the elephant is actually under windsurfing and scuba diving. Oh. <laughs> well, and there's where the book goes wrong. <laughs> uh, no, we're having a ball, Jim. It's it's uh, it's a great uh, great adventure again, and uh, the bike's plugging along. It's just about to tick over two hundred thousand now, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's coping well. I've I've, I've put. Um, uh, as Shirley said, the harder compound uh, tyres on it, uh, but uh, semi-off-road tyres, um, knobby tyres, because uh, I know we're going to hit a fair bit of dirt and um, I've got, uh, actually I've got a spare air cleaner with me, a couple of spare spark plugs, a spare alternator belt, um, things that uh, could go wrong. Hopefully I've just about got it covered. When you said uh, you put knobby tyres on, what tyres did you put on? Um, there's been a lot of conjecture about which sort of tyres to get. I, I've used Heidenauer tyres before for long distance. Um, they're really hard compound in the middle and a little softer on the edges. And when I went up to um, Prudhoe Bay, I had this set on and I got 37,000 kilometres out of a front tyre, 22,000, no, 26,000 kilometres out of a back tyre. And uh, I'm hoping that these tyres will get me from, I'll put them on in um, Helsinki. Uh, I'm hoping that they'll get me all the way across Russia. 26,000 out of your back tire, that's riding two up on your bike? Two up fully loaded, yes. Wow, that's the amazing. Trick, the trick with the hide nows is, and some people complain that they wear out too quickly in the middle, they're very, very hard walled tires. 
so they're strong and ho able, hopefully able to resist um, a lot of puncturing. But um, uh, they uh, usually over-inflate them. Um, if you inflate them to 42 psi, uh, it's too much. I'm, I'm running them at uh, 38, uh, 37, 38 in the back and 32 to 30 in the front. And that seems to be okay with them. Uh, the, the downside to them is on bitumen, they sing. You get a lot of noise from the front tyre. But I'm willing to uh, compromise that for longevity on this trip. So let's just talk about your uh, setup right now. You're you're riding two up um, on your old bike. <laughs> Obviously, you're you're approaching two hundred thousand on this thing now. Um, just tell us about your whole setup and, the, and whether you've been camping or hoteling it. Yeah, well, look, we're uh, we're carrying camping gear, um, but we haven't used it yet. I mean, to be quite honest with you, the north of uh, Europe has been too damn cold to be camping out and uh, waking up in the morning covered in snow. You guys in Canada might be used to it, mate, but we're not. <laughs> Um, but uh, I think um, we've, we've got our, our camping bag um, just in case. Uh, I'm told that, you know, you can, uh, you can stay in the yurts uh, on the desert with the, the, um, the people out there and they love having you there and they're really comfortable. Um, but if, we need that um, safety blanket, if you like, of uh, a tent and sleeping bags. We've actually used our sleeping bags in uh, some of the little uh, campgrounds in um, Norway where they have wonderful little um, huts um, which are really nice and warm but um, you need to have your own bedding. So carrying the sleeping bags has been really good. The only thing we haven't used so far is the tent. What about the bike? Um, the bike's going really well. Um, what I did was uh, I don't have the top box on. I've, I've got rid of the top box. Uh, it just pushed the weight too high. Um, we've got the standard uh, BMW panniers, um, which of course Shirley has the larger one. I have the little one. Um, is and, he is uh, it me or is he complaining, Shirley? <laughs> I don't know. He's just got to get over it because that's just, that's just life. But he does mention it all the time. I could tell that the way he just threw it in there was almost you know like a little kid. You know, he had to, he had to throw in that little jab. Total strangers who come up to look at the bike know that I have the big <laughs> We always we always tend to have a um, uh, a committee that sees us off or welcomes us at uh, hotels when we pull in. Um, so yes, I do tell them that. Um, but the, we have uh, a big bag, which is a sixty liter bag, uh, which contains our sleeping bag, sleeping mats, tent, first aid kit. I've got a um, a jumper starter for the bike if the battery collapses, um, which is a fantastic little um, uh, lithium-ion battery, um, and an air compressor, basically. And then we've got another little bag which sits on top of that 60-litre bag, which contains just our shoes, our jumpers, or our uh, liners if it gets hot. Uh, we can take all our liners out of our gear. Um, and we've got two small Wonderlic um, canvas bags which sit on top of the panniers and in that we've got a stove, um, about three days worth of food um, and bits and pieces like that plus you know, spare gloves and bits and pieces. 
That's three days' worth of food if you want to live on tuna and dry biscuits. <laughs> There's not a lot of variety in the food that we've got. It really is emergency supplies or just something for lunch on the side of the road. Yes, that's right. For those that are listening, where can they follow you? Now, I've seen your posts on Facebook. Um, yeah, are Facebook. you running a blog? Um, Facebook is Aussies Overland on Facebook, A-U-S-S-I-E-S, Overland. And our webpage is aussiesoverland.com.au. Well, that's great. Shirley and Brian, you guys take care. Ride safe out there. And um, hopefully we'll talk to you um, maybe in a, in a couple of weeks. That'd be terrific, Jim. No Thanks a lot. And of course, that was Shirley and Brian Ricks from the Land of Oz. Now, who's interested in riding a rally on the east coast of Canada? This may be your chance. You've only got a couple of days, as a matter of fact, from the airing of this show to get signed up. So you want to pay attention very carefully and then get right on the computer and get yourself signed up. We're going to talk with Rob Harris of the Fundy Adventure Rally. I'm speaking with Rob Harris, who runs the Fundy Adventure Rally, and that's on the East Coast in Canada. Rob, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you for having me, Jim. So, Rob, tell us, what is the Fundy Adventure Rally? The Fundy Adventure Rally is, I guess, as the name would suggest, an adventure rally that happens to take place in the Fundy area of southern New Brunswick. It's about, it varies from year to year, it's about a 500-kilometer loop. Um, and it's separated by every 100 kilometers or so by a gas stop. And at each gas stop, riders, um, mainly riding in teams, will get a choice as to whether they want to run an A, B, or C route. Uh, the A route is the easy, easy route, mainly gravel and paved roads. You could drive a car down it, basically. A B is a bit more challenging, more like a heavy-duty truck uh, to get through it. And then a C would be more ATV-orientated. So... The whole idea of the rally was to try and encompass the whole range of adventure motorcycles because it is, uh, if you believe what the industry says, it's a huge range uh, of, of bikes now. Um, we would define them by a 19-inch front wheel, but we want someone on a big GS V-Strom to come out and have a great day or someone on a KTM um, Husqvarna, uh, maybe a smaller dual sport to come out and really push themselves as well. So September 10 to 13th, that's 2015, Sussex, New Brunswick is where they're headed. What, what is the area like overall that you're riding in? You know, what? It, it's, it's very diversified. I, I've done quite a lot of riding, admittedly mainly in the East Coast. I did, I've done one trip out in the West through the Rockies on, on some back roads, but um, out here, if you get close to the Fundy, the Bay of Fundy, it gets very rocky. Um, so you've got some trails that are challenging, hilly, rocky. Uh, it also gets, uh, we, I was just there today, uh, and it's a 28 degree day today, but on the Fundy shoreline, it was down to about 18. So it, it's a very cold mass of water, and when you get close to it, you feel it. Um, so that's quite rocky around there. And then once you start getting inland a bit, you get uh, more earthen trails. Uh, which are quite nice, quite fast. And then as you go a bit further north, you tend to get into the bogs. So you'll get a lot more um, going through big mud holes, that kind of stuff. So it gives us a really good um, uh, gradient of different types of roads to go on, which you know you can slot within the A, Bs and Cs to really offer a good, um, uh, a good mixture for the riders. Now, you've got a, a number of sponsors on this, including BMW. So this is a, a successful rally. I think it's, is this your third year? This is our second year. 
this is our second year. We did, we, we, we did it as a first uh, first year last year. Um, I'm not sure actually if we're going to continue it as an annual event or maybe make it a biannual event. Um, but no, it's it's proven rather well. BMW were very good. Uh, we, we we pitched the idea to them um, a couple of years ago and just basically said, you know, this is what we want to do. We want to make it open to all adventure riders. So you uh, would you be interested? And they were they were behind us 100. percent So they've been great. And then this year we've got um, Kimpex, who's a distributor of motorcycle helmets, gear, parts, that kind of stuff, and Twisted Throttle, um, the Canadian version. They used to be a vicious cycle. They've jumped on too. Um, and then we've also got, sorry, I'm, excuse the plugs here, but the one of the big sponsors that really helps make this rally work is Spot. Uh, I'm not sure if, if you've used a Spot uh, device before, Jim, but they're the, the, the GPS trackers. I have one. You have one? Good, yep. good. Then you'll know how useful they are. So they're, they're basically our safety guy. So every team that goes into the trails, um, they, they take a Spot device with them. And um, we can then track them from HQ. We can actually see exactly where they're going and, and uh, how good or bad a progress they're making. But more importantly, if they do get in a situation and someone does get hurt, there is that emergency button that you can press. And um, in come the black helicopters and whisk you away, hopefully. Yeah, we've got about 85 riders this year. Um, 85 riders. Wow, that's great. 80, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 way above what we were expecting at this point. Um, so yeah, we've got we, we've got one. The requirement is each team needs a spot. Now they can bring their own spot unit in if they have one, or they can rent one from us. Um, but yeah, that's that's we, we couldn't do the rally without it really because it, it just it means you know where everybody is and you've got that really important safety element if someone gets hurt because you know these are the trails like you you could be a good. Um, a good hour away from really civilization, so you need to uh, you need to be able to get help pretty quick if you get into trouble. Not that anyone will. Last year, nobody did, thankfully, and I think hopefully this year will be the same. Uh, we we go over all the possible danger points on the trails or areas where you might get into trouble beforehand, um, and we we normally get a very good. Well, last year we got a very good bunch of riders coming out so fingers crossed but again just in case we we have the spot devices rob what other things should people see or can they maybe tie in if they come to the the rally um what other things can they see in the area well that's a very good question we try and encourage people the, the majority of people do come locally like new brunswick nova scotia but we get probably about 20 percent coming from quebec ontario and the states um Unfortunately, New Brunswick's got the label as the drive-through province um, uh, for relatively good reason. But the the, the South Coast is is magnificent, the, the Fundy area. Um, of course, if you want to go further afield, you can go into Nova Scotia, which is just a gorgeous province. Um, and then up, you've got the Cabot Trail in the north, and then you've got the whole um, coast with the coves. Uh, and the ocean on the south, um, uh, you can't really go wrong. If you really want to get adventurous, you can hop on the ferry and get over to Newfoundland too, which is just absolutely gorgeous. And the, the people are just amazing. I'm not, unfortunately, I'm not an East Coaster, as you can probably tell. Um, but we moved here about five years ago, and the, the, the friendliness of people here is, is, is just phenomenal. It's, um, it's, I know it's, it's a bit corny in a way because everyone says the East Coast is, is the friendliest part of Canada, but it's true from my experience, uh, not to put other Canadians down, but 
Um, it's you, you, you can't get better people and you take it to an extreme, go as far east as you can to Newfoundland and that's, they're just amazing. They treat you like family from my experience. So I would recommend, I mean, even if you're not considering coming out here for the rally, obviously I would like people to come to the rally, but to certainly make the East Coast uh, a trip because uh, it, it is a special part of Canada. And of course you've got, uh, I think from all the adventure riders, you've got the uh, Labrador Highway. Um, which is uh, actually getting paved up uh, as each year goes by. So I would recommend if you want to do that, to do that soon, if you still want it to be an adventure anyway. There still are stretches that are, are dirt? Mm-hmm. Yes, there are. I'm not, I, I tried to do it a couple, no, about three or four years ago, but unfortunately the person I was with managed to um, come off his bike and uh, damage his shoulder. So we didn't get that far into the into the trail there. But there's still quite a lot of it that is unpaved but every year i think they're, they're doing a good 50 100 kilometers so ultimately to pave the whole lot which would open up that whole area to a lot more people but unfortunately it would take away i think the uh that true spirit of adventure of doing that section of road yeah certainly a destination for adventure riders well the funny adventure rally sounds like a really good time and i mean i really appreciate your offer to have us come and, and i wish we could have made it maybe we'll we'll come next year rob you are also the editor of canada moto guide yes tell us about canada moto guide canada moto guide that is an online only magazine uh we've been going for about i think about 18 years now in this format um, we started off in print and we started off as the Ontario Motorcycle Guide and have grown into the Canadian side. Um, we really cover anything motorcycle related, uh, specifically with a Canadian bent on it, thus the name. So if it's if it's Canadian story, it will get our attention over something that's more international. Um, but it's it's it's... It's a, a generic uh, motorcycle magazine as much as we cover everything. We don't just focus on Canada. We'll cover all kinds of stuff. And after 18 years, you have to be doing something, right? I mean, there's, there's tons of information there. I mean, I, I know your site well and uh, tons of information there and always the, the latest information too, which is great. Yeah, thank you very much. I mean, we, 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 we did a focus on the news probably about 10 years ago. We, we decided that we've really got to get onto the news and make sure that that's uh, prominent on the magazine. So we, we do try and um, make sure that we cover it best we can. And one of the advantages actually being on the East Coast is the time zones. So you can get up, you don't have to get up super early to, uh, to get the latest news out before anyone else does. Um, but yeah, thank you very much. I think I think we I think we do a good job. I mean, I I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't think we we did a good job. Uh, and we do try and be very um, very honest with the magazine, which, as you probably know, is 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 a tough job in journalism already. But if you're the honest, or, or you, if you focus on trying to say how everything is, you you you, you get a rougher ride out of it. I think. Um, but I'm 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 happy with what we've done and where we're at. Uh, I think we've done quite well. Well, the Fundy Adventure Rally is uh, September 10 to 13, 2015 in Sussex, New Brunswick. And uh, you can go to the website fundyadventurerally.com to find out more. And Rob Harris is the editor of Canada Moto Guide, and it's canadamotoguide.com. Rob, thanks very much for coming on and talking to us about the rally and Canada Moto Guide. Pleasure, Jim. Thanks very much. And anytime you can make it out to the rally, please do. The invitation's always there. Rob Harris from the Fundy Adventure Rally. You can find out more by visiting the website fundyadventurerally.com and you want to do that right now to get yourself registered for this year's event, September 10 to 13, 2015 in Sussex, New Brunswick. 
And as always, that link and all the other links from this show will be in the show notes for this episode on our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. You can also sign up for free for their weekly e-rider newsletter at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, when you're on the road, or off the road for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and can fill a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA and with a five-year warranty. Check it out at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. And Moto Machines. Moto Machines offers luggage systems, protection, windshields, custom ABS plastic parts, and more for over 700 different models dating back to the 1970s. Moto Machines carries the widest selection of luggage available on the market, and all accessories are bolt-on ready for a custom fit. Visit them at motomachines.com. That's motomachines.com. that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. We certainly hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it because it was a lot of fun. It was certainly a a good show. Now drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com Click on the comment button. Let us know what you think of the show. Click on the donate button. If you think we're doing a good job, you want to send us some cash, it's not extra. Believe me, it's well needed for the show. We can certainly use your input. But we can use your input for a lot of things. So send us ideas for the show, comments you have on past shows. And of course, all the shows are free to listen to. All you have to do is drop by the website and you can see we've got a lot of shows there now with a lot of people and a lot of great information. We've been lucky to have really fantastic guests with wonderful information for us. So certainly go there and enjoy the wealth of uh, the shows that we've accumulated over the past... um, well, well over a year now. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. And now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. No excuses now. Even pack it up. Go for a bit of a ride. Adventure Rider Radio, by the way, will be hitting the road again soon. And we're going to let you know more about that as that comes up. And we'll be heading out to some different events around this country and others. And we'll go as far as we can possibly go. See if we can't get the word out and maybe meet you at one of the events. So listen to the shows coming up for more information. And we'll give it to you as we know it. Next week, we've got some great things lined up. So don't miss next week's show. It's going to be a good one as well. Adventure Rider Radio is made possible through Canoe West Media. Special thanks to co-producer Elizabeth Martin. Hi, this is Ramona Schwartz, a free soul from the Black Forest, and you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 